This is the O'Reilly Programming Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyle. Our guest today is Luciano Hamalio. Luciano is technical principal at ThoughtWorks. He is also the author of the O'Reilly book, Fluent Python, and the learning path, Fluent Python, The Power of Special Methods. You can find out more about the book and video at Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. Go to safaribooksonline.com for more details. Luciano has also worked using Python on some of the largest news portals in Brazil, and he's spoken at numerous conferences, including OzCon and PyCon. We'll talk to him about some of Python's unique features, Python's data model, some of Python's core libraries, AsyncIO, and a lot more. Enjoy the show. Hi, Luciano. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Well, you've been using Python for 20 years and writing about it and teaching it for nearly that long. What is it about Python that makes it a good choice for certain projects? Well, I, I would say Python is a good choice for many projects. Of course, it depends on the projects, but for many projects, Python is a good choice for two main reasons. First of all, it's a very flexible language that has uh, gained the support of a lot of different professional communities, and that is reflected in the huge number of libraries that Python has these days, covering pretty much every area of human knowledge. And so it's suitable to many different kinds of projects because often you will find that some of the most robust libraries supporting software development in that domain are already available for Python. And the second reason is because it's a language that is uh, easy to pick up. And that's why it's it's already been identified as the top language being used for the top 100 uh, computer science uh, programs in the U.S., there was an article on com- communications of the ACM about that. So about at the time, uh, about uh, 40% of the top 100 CS programs in the U.S. used Python as their first language. And the rest, the, the remaining 60% were spread over several other languages. So that means that it's uh, uh, easy to find people that know Python. And also because of the first reason, because Python is so suitable to many different areas and, and so widely used in many different areas, it's uh, worthwhile for, for people to learn Python on their own. So for those reasons, it's not hard to find people that are already know Python. And when you're lo- looking for a language in a project, I think the, those are the top two considerations that you have to have in mind. The first is, is the language suitable to do what we need to do? And the second is, uh, is the team ready to use it? Well, let's talk about your personal experience in using Python in some of the largest news portals in Brazil. Can you tell us why you found Python to be good for for those particular applications? Yeah, uh, that's very interesting. I was sort of a pioneer in in web development in Brazil because I got involved in uh, web development in 94. And then I was hired at the end of that year by one of the largest media companies in Brazil to help them devise their uh, online strategy. And then, and then I became CTO of the of the news portal that they launched later. At that time, we used a lot of Perl. Perl was the most widely used programming language for server-side programming in the early days of the web. But then Perl has its problems. I really tried very hard to like it, but uh, I didn't really enjoy the, the all the variability in the syntax and some other things. So I became really excited about Java when I found out about it. And it wasn't really great for the thing that Sun was promoting it at the time, which was client-side uh, applets. But I thought it was an interesting language to run on the server side, because at the time, in the company where I worked, we had a very diverse set of, of servers. We had servers from Sun, from Silicon Graphics, from Dell, 
running three or four different OSs. And so it was interesting to have a, lang a language that was more structured, you know, with strict typing and so on, like, like C and C++, but which was easier to make it run on, the, on different platforms. So Java offered that. So I am pretty sure we were pioneers in Brazil using Java on the server side. But I never liked Java too much either. I thought it was, I always thought it was too verbose. Actually, when I left that company, uh, I took a sabbatical and I actually took a course at MIT. And during that course, it was the first time that I saw somebody that I respected, the professor, Lynn Stein. She criticized Java sometimes. And that for me was a really interesting thing because the, all the books that I had read about Java were just hyping it. The thing is, what I'm trying to get at here is that I had this first contact with Perl and then with Java. And then when I discovered Python, it was very interesting because for me, Python was like the best of Perl and the best of Java combined because it was uh, more consistent. I had, it had nicer syntax than Perl, but it was not as verbose as Java. So it was like really the combination. I mean, it was another thing. I had been converted to the idea of object-oriented programming before, and Perl was not object-oriented when I first used it. And then after a few years, it became object-oriented, but Python was always object-oriented. So programming in an object-oriented way in Python was as natural as it is uh, to do it in Java. So that's why I became interested in, in Python. And then the, the other reason... Right after I started uh, using Python, thought this is the language that I want to use now for server-side programming, I discovered Zoop, which is a, a very sophisticated framework that not a lot, of, a lot of people use these days, but but was really interesting because it was really the first fully object-oriented way of programming web applications. And you've written and talked about how, because Python is easy to learn, that therefore many programmers don't dive deep into the language. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the features that are unique to Python that are often overlooked? Well, uh, that's a very good question. I think one of the things is, uh, in, in my book, I start talking about the data model. And that's something sort of an advanced topic. And I think it's the, my, mine is the first book in the market that talks about that in the first chapter. Of course, it's a book intended that I wrote for people who already are using Python and want to understand it better. But one of the key things, so what is the data model? The data model is a, is a set of conventions and interfaces that are widely used in the language and in the standard library. That once you understand these conventions and interfaces, you become much better at leveraging what the language offers, what the key language features and uh, the libraries. So one example is, for instance, the, the concept of generators or iterators in Python. Like, like you said, I've been using Python for a long time. It started kind of informally and then uh, it grew. And then with Python 3, we have a lot more of that in the, in, the, in the language. Anyway, for instance, the range function that used to return a list of numbers in Python 2, now it returns sort of like an, a generator that will produce the numbers by, by on demand. Fundamental language constructs like the for loop and list comprehensions and other things consume those generators. And that's very efficient because it means that a lot of the evaluation when you're handling a large data sets happens on demand, so it doesn't consume a lot of memory. You can process a lot more data than would fit in the memory. So so iteration and, gen and generators are just one example of, of a feature in the language that sometimes people who come from other languages don't know so well. 
and that uh, it really helps when you when you understand this concept to become a, a better uh, Python programmer. And when you also write and talk about Python's data model, you you mentioned that uh, special methods are the key to Python's consistency, right? Exactly. Yeah. For instance, uh, one thing that actually bothered me for for a few years, and I, I think bothers a lot of people when they come to Python, is for instance the fact that the len function is not a method of the sequences. And well, two things that I like to comment first about, you know, considering other languages. I'm studying Go these days, yeah. and in, in Go also has a length language, a, a length a function that works like the one in Python. It doesn't have a method to do that. And if you think about Java, for instance, Java for the for for the array, you know, which is the, the basic sequence collection in, in Java, the array doesn't have a length method. It has a length attribute. It's something you don't call it, you just access it. And that is kind of a key to understand why len is a function in Python and probably in Go as well. It's because when you're dealing with the built-in data structures that have to be very efficient because the entire language is built on them, like arrays and lists and things like that, you want to retrieve the length of a, an array very quickly because this is something that's gonna that you're going to be doing often. So invoking a method would incur a certain cost. And so the way they solve this, for instance, in Java is not having a method, but just having this uh, attribute. And in Python, the len uh, built-in function, what it does, it looks at the, at the object and see is this a built-in object or an object that was implemented in C? If it is, then there is a struct that has the length there already. Computed. You don't need no need to invoke another method, so on. But Python allows you to be to, to to build your own data structures in a way that is consistent with the way that the built-in data structures work, and that is done by supporting as a fallback. The len function will look for a method called underlen underscore underscore len underscore underscore, which we pronounce underlen. So that's one of the special methods. So if if the object has that method. Then, as a fallback, the len function will, will use that. So Python achieves the efficiency of having len as a built-in function, which saves processing time when retrieving the length of built-in data structures. But it also keeps the whole language uh, consistent, so that end users can create their own collections that behave the same way as the the built-in ones. And that's just one example. There are other examples, like for instance, one of the things that for instance, Go doesn't have. Go has a like a for-range loop, but you can't create your own iterable objects that work with this for-range like we, we, you can in Python. And the way we do that in Python is also by supporting, is by implementing a method called dunderiter. So any object that has a method called dunderiter can be used in a for loop because the for loop will call that method to retrieve an iterator to iterate over the object. And so again, is an example of how having this standard method defined as an interface in the language helps with consistency. Can you talk about some of Python's core libraries and maybe tell us about some of your favorite libraries and what situations you use them in? For the core libraries, one that I really think people should give a, a good look at is uh, the Ether Tools library, because the Ether Tools library has dozens of functions that consume or produce generators. And so functions like, uh, for instance, a function that will skip a, num a number of items in a generator or that will drop 
items in a generator that don't match a certain predicates or that uh, generate that create generators that produce a per- permutations of a sequence. So it's a lot of very interesting functionality there. It was inspired by this by, by the standard library in Haskell. And a lot of, in, of those functions, pretty much all of them, if not all of them, work lazily. So they are really efficient to work with extremely large data structures because they work on demand. So Iter Tools, I think, is very interesting library to learn about, not only because of the things that are done there that you can use at once, but also because of if you enhance your appreciation of the power of generators in the language that will probably give ideas for other ways of using them. So Iter Tools is one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm intrigued by AsyncIO because for a long time, the best way of doing high-performance concurrency for network programming in Python was to use those external uh, frameworks like Twisted and Tornado. But there was a problem. The problem, main problem was they were awesome, but they were two different projects and, some, and they, they had different strengths and weaknesses. And sometimes you wanted to combine features of one with the other and it was just not possible. So I think... I think IO is really important because it brought into the core standard library a definition of what the interface should be for a, an event loop, a reference implementation for an event loop. So that allowed those other projects to adopt this definition and become uh, interoperable. Have you found yourself using PyTest a lot? Oh, yeah. I love PyTest. Yeah. Actually, I'm proud to say that I was uh, the tech, uh, tech reviewer by the ex- uh, for the excellent book by Brian Auken from the pragmatic programmers about PyTest. I love PyTest. It's, uh, it's really my go-to uh, library for unit testing and for other kinds of testing too. But one, one thing that's uh, interesting that you mentioned that because we were, we were talking before about uh, libraries in the core standard library mm-hmm. and PyTest is one example uh, and requests, for instance, is another example of two libraries that are not part of the standard library, but that are more Pythonic than the equivalent libraries in the standard library. Uh, the, the unit test uh, package in the standard library, for instance, is pretty much a straightforward port of, of the Java uh, JUnit library. And so it feels kind of cumbersome. You have to, you know, it's, it feels very Java. It doesn't feel very idiomatic Python. But PyTest is completely idiomatic Python. And it's, it's not only yeah, not only just in the syntax, but also in the spirit of the library. And the same thing can be said about requests. If you compare it with the URL lib package in the standard library, requests are just nicer and more Pythonic. And speaking of Pythonic, I know that in, in your writing and in a lot of your talks, you've pointed to the goal of a good Pythonic API. Uh-huh. So what are the characteristics of that? How, how would you describe a good Pythonic API? Well, Kenneth Wright, which is, who is the creator of requests and other uh, fantastic libraries, says that the API is your user interface, right? So we have to, as programmers, as developers, we have to start thinking more in that sense. And well, you know, pretty much every fundamental principle of user interface design applies to API design. So, for instance, striving for consistency, avoiding surprises. Here's an example, a very simple example. If your API consumes a list of items in a, in a certain call, so, so there's a function in your API that, that takes a list as an argument, you probably should not change the contents of the list because that will 
most likely be unexpected by the by the end user unless the function is you know designed to do exactly that but as a side effect you shouldn't change a data structure that you receive as an argument so that's just one example uh, so avoiding surprises there's lots of you know fundamental principles in user interface design that apply and the other thing is to try and follow the conventions of the language like for instance if you have uh, something that behaves like a mapping, you should really make it behave 100% like a, a Python mapping using the bracket operator with indexes. And if something is not found in, in a map that you develop in your own API, you should raise a key error, a key error and not return uh, none because the, the behavior of returning none belongs to the get method and not to the to item access using brackets. We mentioned in the introduction to the show that you're a Python Software Foundation fellow. Mm -hmm. What are some of the topics that are being discussed in foundation circles now? Well, two things. Uh, one thing that's going on for a few years now that I'm really proud is uh, increasing the uh, diversity in the community, right? So this year, we were very proud that about 40% of the speakers at PyCon US were uh, women. And you can see the effect of that because this has been going on for a few years now and you see more women attending as well. And uh, I, I did a, a, one thing I did, uh, not this year, but last year, I only attended talks given by women. And it was great, you know. This, this, so diversity. And another, another aspect of diversity is the work that the foundation is doing helping communities around the world, right? Because the, the Python Software Foundation is based in the U.S., but it's... Uh, intended to be an international uh, organization. So this last year, they they approved uh, more than 150 different uh, grants, mostly small grants, you know, but but grants help to, to support community events and bringing people to community events around the world. So not only, for instance, helping uh, the uh, PyCon has done that for many years now, right, with the financial aid program where they help people from around the world attend the conference, but also now uh, helping conferences in the Southern Hemisphere, in Brazil, in Nigeria, in Argentina, and other places to afford, for instance, to bring in an international keynote speaker or to afford to offer uh, financial aid within the country. So like, for instance, in, in, in our conference in Brazil, we brought about, I think, 40 women from around the country to the conference with financial aid. And, the, and some of that was with the help of the Python Software Foundation. So, yeah, I think the Python Software Foundation is really doing a great job of, of, of increasing the diversity and the reach of the community around the world. Very impressive, yeah. And Luciano, if our listeners want to find out more about you or what you're doing, where can they go online? I have two Twitter accounts. The most active one is Hamalio.org. So that's my first name with uh, O-R-G at the end, because my email address, if people want to write, is Luciano at Hamalio.org. And then there's also, I, I also created another Twitter handle called Stand Up Dev that I don't tweet so often, but I'm starting to tweet. And the second handle is only tweets in English, and it's only about tech. The first one, I, I tweet a lot in English and Portuguese, and I also talk about politics and Brazilian politics sometimes. <laughs> so those are my main channels of expression online these days. Great. Well, Luciano Hamalio, thank you very much for joining us. We, we appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much, Jeff. 
Thanks for listening. Once again, we invite you to go to Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform, to find out more about our guest Luciano Hamalio's book, Fluent Python, and the learning path he presents called Fluent Python, The Power of Special Methods. And while there, you can also view the video of his talk at OzCon 2016 called Fluent Python, Implementing Intuitive and Productive APIs. And we'll have links to all these items in the show notes that accompany this episode. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or Stitcher so that you never miss an episode. For the O'Reilly Programming Podcast, I'm Jeff Blyle.